Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> Last week um, in Acts 7, we read the story of a guy named Stephen. Uh, actually, we, we read the story of there was an issue within the early church. There were Hellenist, uh, Hellenistic um, Jewish women um, uh, who were uh, not being fed at the time of the meal. The early church was serving a meal every single day, and there were some racial issues within the church, and some of the ladies were not being fed in a timely manner. And so what the church did was they appointed seven gentlemen. Um, they were probably young men. Um, we could refer to them as deacons, to take on the responsibility of making sure that the needs in the church got met, primarily the feeding of these widows, these, um, these Greek Jewish um, widows, making sure that they were taken care of. And out of that, the guys that they picked, man, they were just filled with the Holy Spirit, and like, it was pretty quick that whatever they were called to was beyond just serving these widows. Um, they did that faithfully, but other things started happening in the church. Stephen was uh, called into trial, he was um, stoned to death, and then uh, following that event, persecution in the church in Jerusalem started ramping up big time. Now, there's a couple things that you need to understand just setting-wise. On the day of Pentecost, there were Jewish people from all over the region in Jerusalem on that day. And when the Spirit filled the apostles and the 120 in the upper room, that message of the gospel um, left Jerusalem. And we actually know that there were, there were a couple like home fellowships and churches that were planted in Rome and some of the other areas. And when Paul goes in and he starts doing his missionary journey, some of those areas had never heard the gospel and some of them had heard it, but it got real wacky. And then he came in and brought some, some structure. Um, but there wasn't up to today, there was no uh, concerted evangelistic effort. Until what we're reading today, the church in Jerusalem was the only church. The gospel had not left Jerusalem. The apostles were still in Jerusalem, the 120 were still in Jerusalem. Um, everybody was still there, and the gospel had not spread until persecution hit. So Stephen, he gets stoned, and all of a sudden, persecution starts ramping up and people start looking at each other and they're like, hey, you know, maybe we should move out of Jerusalem. Like, I don't wanna die today. So I'm gonna take my family and we're gonna move. And that is one of the ways that God used to start spreading the church. So last week I put a heavy em emphasis on persecution and, and trying to live in a way where our hearts are prepared for that kind of persecution. Because I, I, I don't think it does us any good to live in a way where we just assume that we'll never go through trials or persecutions uh, or any kind of tribulations. I think that makes really weak people. But I think if we prepare that our lives very well could look like um, someone from the New Testament, it prepares us in a way where there's a certain boldness that we walk with that we wouldn't have walked with any other way. And so living in such a way where if persecution comes my way, I'm not gonna turn my back on Jesus. I'm fully fixed on God. But if persecution doesn't come my way, like I, don't, I haven't lost anything. You know what I'm saying? So that's the reason why I was so heavy on it this week. But this week we're gonna learn about a guy who, he actually fled persecution. As soon as it started, he left the city 
And God used that as well. And so the purpose I'm trying to get across is that God uses persecution and God uses people who flee persecution, all for his purposes. Amen? Okay, let's get to it. Acts chapter eight, let's start in verse one. So this is what's going on in Jerusalem. There's this great persecution happening and the person who's leading it is this guy named Saul who we know last week was a young man who just stood there and watched everybody's coats to make sure nobody did any pickpocketing or stealing any jackets while Stephen was being murdered. So verse one, Saul approved of his execution, talking about the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Well, just a quick pause, Judea and Samaria, those are the two main regions in Israel. And if you were with us during our study in Isaiah last fall, you know that the kingdom of God, or excuse me, the kingdom of Israel had split after Solomon died. Solomon's son took over, so you got King David, King Solomon. Solomon's son takes over. He was a horrible king, and the kingdom split in half. Split in half so that there was a southern kingdom, the capital was Jerusalem, and then there was a northern kingdom, and the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. Now, Samaria is a city, but it's also a region. So then Assyria comes in, completely wipes out the northern kingdom. Babylon comes in, completely wipes out the southern kingdom. But then Babylon, he gets taken by Persia. Eventually, the southern kingdom comes back. They rebuild the temple. But things were never really the same between the north and the south, even after they came back from Babylonian captivity. At the time of Jesus, there was still this racial issue between the north and the south. Sounds familiar? There's this sense that those people up there are not really God's people because they're mixed, they're only half Jewish. They're Jewish and they're intermixed with a bunch of Assyrian blood, so they're not really God's people. God's people are down here in the south around Jerusalem and Judea. And so Luke is calling out the idea that even at this point, it's one nation, but the regions are still very heavily solidified into Judea and Samaria, north and south. That's important to understand where we're going today. Verse two, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went out about preaching the word. And Philip, he was one of the seven that was feeding the, the widows. He went down to the city of Samaria and proclaim to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what, he was, what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had, who had them. So demon possessed people, demons were being cast out. Many who were paralyzed or lame, they couldn't walk, uh, they were healed. So there was much joy in that city when Philip came in and started preaching God's word and the Holy Spirit was moving through him, healing people. Now let's pause right there because Luke begins chapter eight with a contrast. Verses one through three and then four through eight are this contrast. And contrasting, as we've talked about numerous times, is really important in God's word because it gives perspective. It's awesome 
that Philip is preaching God's word and people are getting saved. That's awesome. But it's even awesomer when you take that and put it right next to Saul ravaging the church, which is a Greek word that is on par with the way that a bear attacks its prey. When Luke uses the word ravaging, he's using a very specific word that would, that would be, it's, it's, it's not precision, it is simply like just a, just a tearing and a ripping and a grabbing of any ounce that you could possibly give with no precision or real care for how you're advancing or consuming or stopping. It is just complete madman. That's what Paul was, Saul, that's what Saul was doing to the early church. So you've got this ravaging of the church, people leaving their homes in the middle of the night just so they're not dragged out of their beds in the middle of the night. And then you've got Philip, who's going up to Samaria and preaching the gospel and demons are getting cast out and people who have never walked before are starting to get up and be healed. And so Luke starts this chapter with this contrast. And the contrast is important because he's gonna do this again in the middle of chapter eight where we break from Philip and look at this guy named Simon. But I wanna, just wanna call your attention to the importance of understanding how writers use contrast to drive home a specific point. So we know that Saul, he's in Jerusalem. He's persecuting the church and that is what propelled Philip to leave Jerusalem. The principle for us being that sometimes you sit and endure persecution, but sometimes you don't sit and endure persecution. You get up and you flee persecution. Now, how do you know what to do? Well, that's why you have the Holy Spirit filling you, telling you what to do. Because what God has called you to is not the same that he's, thing that he's called me to. And we have to be okay with the fact that all of us are being used by God in very specific, unique ways. And just because he's not doing the same thing in me as he's doing in you, does not make what he's doing in me wrong because he's not doing it in you. And it, makes, it puts in a, in a perspective where we can stop comparing ourselves to this other person. Well, things would just be much better if God did this thing that he's doing in that person in me. No, he's doing something completely different. And what needs to happen is you gotta get okay with that. All right, and you stop working against him and rest in the fact that he has got all of this in control. And what he's working through you is different than what he's working in me or this person or this person. But fleeing persecution also isn't just an example of the many different ways that God works through his people. It also reinforces the way that the gospel is spread. This story is essentially the spread of evangelism. And Philip's first destination in evangelism is Samaria. So I'm gonna, if you'll put the first map up on the screen. I told you last, uh, just a moment ago, that Samaria was the capital of the Northern Kingdom. And if you can imagine the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, they're kind of split just north of Jerusalem, like right where the top of that J would be. Just kind of draw a rough line right in the middle. Everything south of that would have been the Southern Kingdom with the, with the capital Jerusalem. Everything north of that would have been the Northern Kingdom, Samaria. But we're way past that. We're almost 700 years past that because Assyria came in and destroyed the northern kingdom in Samaria 700 years before this event is taking place. But since then, other people have moved in, cities have been rebuilt, and there is now a city in Samaria, and it's filled with the people who lived in that region. Most of them would consider themselves half Jewish. Most of them would be considered you know, half Assyrian or half Samaritan, and they refer to themselves as Samaritans. That's why we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. It was a really important story of what Jesus is trying to get across. 
and he's using the racial tension of this people group to drive home his point. So the orange line is the path that Philip took from Jerusalem to Samaria. He traveled up through the mountains. This is probably about 40-ish miles, but it's mountain travel, so it probably took, I don't know, two hours, two and a half hours by car, and you know, a couple of days to a week um, just walking. But this is where we um, end up. So I just kind of want you to just mentally picture this. This is where, this is the path that Philip would have traveled on his way up to Samaria. And the gospel getting to Samaria was good news. Um, And then Luke just kind of hits pause in that. And he starts telling us this story about this other person in Samaria named Simon. So Philip gets up there. And the story seems to be on Philip, and then all of a sudden we take a detour and we meet this other guy named Simon. And the reason why Luke is doing this is, again, to show us a contrast. What does it look like when the gospel of Jesus is presented to the hearts of man? Well, you've got some that respond like Philip, who will just, every town they go to, they're talking about Jesus. And then you'll have some people like Simon who hear the good news and all they see is dollar signs. One person hears the message and they're like, man, this changes everything. I repent, I turn from my sin and all I want is God's kingdom. And some people hear that message and they're like, man, I could make some money off of this. I I, I, I could make this work for me. So let's pick that story up. We'll come back to Philip in a minute, but we're gonna get a verse uh, nine in Acts chapter eight. So Philip is there in Samaria. Verse nine says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And everybody paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Let's pause there. Philip meets this guy named Simon the Magician, who's famous, popular, he's an influencer, and his power is spiritual mysticism. He likes controlling people with the idea that I have some hidden knowledge that you don't have. And if you want it, you've gotta go through me to get it. You can have it as long as I'm the broker. Good thing we don't ever see this in church, huh? The idea that there's only two or three people who've got the lock on God and if it wasn't for them, we'd all be lost. So Philip comes into town and he preaches the gospel and the people go wild for it. They love hearing this news. And we hear that this guy named Simon, who is controlling everybody, he hears the gospel presentation, and we're told that he believes. But as we're gonna find out, we see that in verse 13, but as we see, as we go through the story, there's actually little fruit to that belief. 
that there's a difference between believing that the story of Jesus is true and actually, actually surrendering your life to what you believe. There's a difference to your brain saying, that's true, and your heart saying, I'm going to obey what's true. And this is what we see in this guy named Simon. And we see this because he's about to get rebuked by the apostle Peter. And the reason why he's about to get rebuked is because Simon wants not just Jesus, he wants Jesus and more power. And in my study and preparing for this, I came across a commentary by a guy named F.F. Bruce. It's a new, new international commentary. And he makes mention of some of the early church writings all the way back to a guy named Irenaeus, um, some of the early church fathers in the late uh, first century, um, early second century, not biblical writers, but just early church historians. They actually comment on the fact that this guy here, Simon, the magician is the father of Gnosticism. Now, if you're not familiar with Gnosticism, it was one of the early, it was one of the earliest false gospels in the early church. And essentially what it said was, spirituality is the height of everything. The physical, tangible world we live in is falling away and decaying, and so there's no value in the physical side of anything. Relationships, not important. People, not important. What's important is this hidden knowledge, increasing in spirituality. Any demonstration of spirituality or spiritual gifts, that's what we're chasing. This is what's most important, because the tangible side, it doesn't matter. It's all gonna die, it, it has no value. The, the spiritual side of everything is what is most important. Where did that idea come from? Why did Paul have to spend a good deal of time in the book of Galatians combating that theory or that false gospel in the early church? Because this guy is the one who started it. And it hasn't disappeared. You can still find corners of so-called Christianity preaching a Gnostic gospel. That the physical side of things is very unimportant. It doesn't really matter what you do. As long as you love people, it doesn't matter if you obey what the Word of God says. It's really just about your heart and your emotions and the non-tangible side of your relationship with God. That's what's most important. It's not what you do or how you live or how you treat people. No, no, no. It's all the emotional side, the spiritual components of things. So this is where this comes from. Let's get into verse 14. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, two of the apostles that walked with Jesus. They came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm aware. This gets, that's weird, wait a second. This opens up some very strange theological questions. Are you telling me that people can get saved now and not receive the Holy Spirit? Are you telling me the only way I can get the Holy Spirit is if somebody lay hands on me? Okay, we'll address that in a second. I just wanna let you know, I see you and I hear you and we'll be back to it. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also. Okay, so he didn't really believe. 
He wanted power. You mean following Jesus is, is a way I can get more power? Cool, I'll do that. No, that's not how it works, man. That's not how any of this works. Please give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What does that mean? That's a, that's a phrase that essentially means, I see that you haven't changed at all and that every situation you see, you're looking at through the lens of how do I make some money off of this? You're an opportunist. You're not a disciple. And Simon answered, oh, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Well, if you were really a follower of Christ, you would know you could pray to the Lord yourself. You don't need somebody doing that for you. Verse 25, now when they had testified, spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So that little orange line that I showed you before, um, the apostles, Peter and John, traveled up that line to Samaria. This all transpired, and then they head back down to Jerusalem, and they were preaching the gospel all the way back down. Now, I said earlier, uh, okay, so just a quick reference. So, um, the, or just a quick summary. So we, we see that Philip has gone up to Samaria. He's preached the gospel. We're told that lots of people believed and people were actually even baptized. But then we're told that the spirit didn't actually fall on the people who were baptized. Peter and John had to go up there and lay their hands on them. So this, as I said, raises some questions. Does this mean that people can't get, when they get saved, they don't receive the Holy Spirit? Is this setting a precedence that uh, we can purchase the power of the Spirit, that it's only reserved to a few specific people? Well, the answer to all those questions is no. That's not what this is saying. What is happening here is a very unique moment in the history of the church. And what I mean by that is what, what we're watching is the kingdom of God starting to spread beyond Jerusalem. So Jesus, in the very beginning of Acts, before he ascended, he said, you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. So he's telling them that this gospel message is going to spread. But there are a couple really significant people groups that it needs to spread to in a very specific order in order to communicate God's love for his people. God chose Abraham. Out of Abraham came this nation, Israel. Jesus came to Israel. He came to preach to Israel. But the message was never just reserved for Israel. So when Jesus first came, you have these moments where Gentiles are coming up and wanting salvation, and you see Jesus saying things like, look, it's, it's, he has a conversation with the woman about the, the breadcrumbs and falling to the table. He's like, well, don't even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table? The idea being, look, I understand that like, like Gentiles, they're not part of God's family yet, but can't we still benefit from the things that fall off of the table of God's family? The point being that this message had a very strategic expansion plan. It started in Israel and Jerusalem, because that's where the temple was. That's where, the Pente that's where Pentecost happened. That's where the Spirit fell and filled everybody. But from that point forward, who were the next people group that need to hear the gospel? The people who originally had rebelled, their ancestors had rebelled up in the northern kingdom in Samaria. 
They're the next ones. They're the next family of the Jews to hear the message. And that's what we see here. And so what needed to happen was Peter and John, as apostles, ambassadors of Jesus, needed to go up to each one of these moments of expansion to give credibility to the fact that yes, this was actually God Almighty doing this, and I'm an ambassador of Jesus, giving my stamp of approval that this is what God is actually doing, and the stamp of approval is the Holy Spirit. What you're witnessing in this moment is for lack of a better word, the moment of Pentecost for Samaria. This is God saying to his people, I've always loved you. And even though I had to wipe you out and send the Assyrians in, my love for you has not died. And I came to die for you as well. And for anyone that surrenders and follows me, you will get the Holy Spirit as a seal of salvation. Why did the apostles have to be there for it? Because this is the first time that the gospel had ever been preached to the Sumerians. And the representatives of Jesus are there giving their stamp of approval saying, yes, this is God doing. It's not just some guy named Philip coming and saying the gospel message. This is really God doing it. And we're here on behalf of God's kingdom saying, yes, he is doing it. And the evidence is the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is not the last time this happens. It happens also again around like Acts, just two more chapters, I think, in like 10, 10 or 11. You've got the story of, of Cornelius um, and you've got uh, the Gentiles receiving the gospel message. Peter is there giving the stamp of approval at that moment as well. We're told that Cornelius is a guy who loves God. He gives, he fasts, he regularly prays. Is he a Christian? Is he not a Christian? Well, he doesn't get the Holy Spirit until later, so, so what's happening? It's the same situation here with uh, as happening with Sumerians. You've got these two significant moments where the apostles are coming up, giving their stamp of approval on the kingdom of God, now expressing to these people, and we don't see this happening anywhere else in scripture after this. That's why I say this is a very unique moment in scripture. When Paul starts writing to the churches who've been planted for two and three years, he doesn't reference anything about needing some special guy to come lay hands on you before you can receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, it says the opposite. He says, when you were saved, we were all baptized into one spirit. So when you get saved, as we said a couple uh, weeks ago, when you get saved as a Christian, at that moment you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And you are encouraged multiple times subsequently after that to be regularly filled with the Holy Spirit. And some of those moments of being filled with the Spirit come with some kind of a manifestation of a, a new gift or some kind of demonstration of his power with boldness or wisdom. But the, the principle is that when you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit. And these moments that we're seeing here, the reason why the apostles came is to give their stamp of approval, to let them know, hey, the, this message, it's not just for us. It's not just for us in Jerusalem. It's for everyone. Good? Okay. <clears throat> so let's shift our attention back to Philip. Oh man, I forgot this. Let me, let me make this one thing. So the, the first thing that the apostles, one of the reasons why the apostles had to come in was for credibility <clears throat> to establish the fact that, yeah, this is something God doing. But the other thing that they had to do was to call out heresy. Those are the two main responsibilities of an apostle. It's a person who saw Jesus face to face and was given the authority to be able to say, this is scripture that you are supposed to follow and this is heresy. Who tells us what's in, what's out, what God is actually doing? How, how come we don't follow later on what this Simon guy says about Gnosticism? Because he wasn't an apostle and he didn't have the authority to dictate what actually scripture was. 
And that's what the apostles are doing. They're coming in and they're saying, God is doing this, but they're also saying, God is not doing that. So you don't get to come into God's house and treat this like some kind of business where all of the resources are funneling up to just a th- three or four guys up at the top, and now you're gonna start franchising this thing across the country. That's not how any of this works. Who says that? The apostles, they tell us this. And that's what he's telling Simon when he rebukes Simon. Now let's get over to verse 26. It says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So he rose up and he went. And when he got there, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So this guy, he was high up uh, in the, uh, the, the realm of, of queen of the Ethiopians, Candace. He went into Jerusalem to worship. He's on his way back from Jerusalem, and Philip comes down to this little corner town in Gaza, and he meets them as the chariot passes by. Verse 28, And as he was returning, seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, said to Philip while he was standing there on the side of the road, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran up to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, hey, my man, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, this is Isaiah 53, seven and eight. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a a lamb before its shear is silent he, so he opens not his mouth, and in his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his like is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch looked at Philip and said, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? Is Isaiah talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, do you see that water out there? What prevents me from being baptized? And I imagine Philip's like, man, nothing. Nothing prevents you from being baptized. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now watch this. And they came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. This man teleported out of there. (laughs) But Philip found himself at Azotus, which is about 20 to 25 miles away. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns he came to Samaria, until he came to Caesarea. Now this is a really wild story, so let's recap it just for a moment. You've got, got, uh, let's go ahead and go to the, the, the next map. All right, so Philip, he's up here in Samaria, and the Holy Spirit, through an angel of the Lord, tells him, I want you to go down to Gaza, out in the desert, and I want you to just wait. All right, Lord, you're in control. My whole life now is about what you want me to do, so man, you just lead. Just tell me what to do, where to go, how to live. I'm there. That's Philip's attitude. So Philip, 
heads down through the mountain, heads out in the desert, and he's out here in Gaza, and he's just sitting here waiting, and all of a sudden this chariot goes by, and the Holy Spirit says, you see that chariot? Go up next to it and talk to the guy in it. All right, Lord. So he goes up and he talks to the guy and he finds out this guy is reading Isaiah and they have this conversation. The guy gets baptized and as the guy goes down in the water, Philip lifts him back up and he's gone. Philip is, has disappeared. And I can imagine the Ethiopian, he's like, well, that's weird. But he gets in his chariot, he goes back home, and we know from church history that he went home and he preached the gospel to the Ethiopians, and uh, in the first century, second century, third century, there was a very strong, uh, predominant uh, Christian presence. There were like massive Christian churches being planted all around in Ethiopia because of this situation. And also, it ties back to prophecy in Isaiah, and we went through that, I won't cover all that. But the moment he comes up out of the water, he's transported, and from that city, he travels back up to Caesarea. So if you go to the last map, this is, this is the, the, the rough uh, area of what happened. So he was in Gaza, uh, the blue line is him going down to Gaza, the purple line that's dotted, that's him teleporting up to Ashdod. Uh, Ashdod, Azatos, same city. So he goes up, he is transported up there to, to that city, and then he walks all the way up to Caesarea. It's a bummer he couldn't have been, anyway. So he has up. <laughs> the reason why he walks the rest of the way is because we're told all the way up to Caesarea, he witnesses and he preaches the gospel and people get saved. Okay. Why are we, why is Luke giving us this story and why are we spending so much time looking at Philip and Simon the magician? Well, I told you when we started reading Simon is because Luke is trying to give us a contrast between these two responses to the gospel. One person hears the gospel and surrenders their whole life and says, hey, the greatest thing I could do with my life is to serve widows lunch. That's what I wanna do with my life. I just wanna serve God's people. And then another person hears the gospel presentation and says, man, I could make a lot of money off of this. Well, you see Simon called out and then he's rebuked and not really referenced again, but we get this story of Philip bookending this idea of Simon, and Luke is trying to drive home to us one major point, and that's the only major point that I want you to walk away with today. I want you to look at what God can do with a surrendered life, okay? Now, follow me here, because this isn't the last time that we'll find out and hear about Philip. Philip, we find out in, was it, Acts 21, verses eight and nine. Paul's on one of his last missionary trips. He comes through and we're told that Paul stops in Caesarea at a house of a man named Philip the Evangelist. And in this home with Philip is his four daughters who all prophesy. They're prophets, prophetesses. (laughs) There are some men in the New Testament And when you read their story, you're like, man, that's like a skyscraper. Paul, he gave up marriage. He gave up any ambition of life. He gave himself to missions and planting churches. 
And when I look at that as a model for how I could follow Jesus, it just seems like a really tall order. But then we're also given these other guys, like Philip. And this is why I love Philip. Because Philip was a family man, like most of us in here. He was a dad, and he loved Jesus. He raised four little girls to love Jesus. And he said at the very early stages of his life, right after he got saved, all I really want to do is follow God. I don't really want to build something for myself. I don't really want to be somebody. I don't need anybody knowing my name. All I'm really interested is finding a nice girl to settle down with, to have a few kids, and tell everybody I know about what Jesus has done in my life. And God says, you give me a life like that, and I'll show you what I can do. Entire cities will be transformed through a life who says, I surrender. Now the thing about Philip is that he wasn't an apostle. There was a Philip the apostle, but this isn't that guy. This is Philip the widow lunch feeder guy. He's a lunchroom dude. He's just making sandwiches. But his heart of surrender, God worked through, God filled him with his spirit. And this dude is teleporting around Israel to preach the good news of Jesus while he's also marrying a woman and having four beautiful little girls who all prophesy. What is the point of today's message? The point of today's message is that just by, by the grace of God, we as the people of God can catch the vision that Luke is throwing out to us. And it's this, you don't need a title, you don't need to be special, you don't have to have accomplished nine monumental things in the eyes of God's people before you're qualified or ready to do God's things. All you really need is to surrender to what he wants to do through you. That's it. And that is good news for you guys. That's good news for moms in here. That's good news for dads in here. You own a small business and you feel like the best thing I could do is just make sure that this business keeps, no, that is not the best thing that you can do. The best thing you can do is wherever he is put right in front of you to allow you to be filled with his spirit and allow him to do things through you that you could not previously do yourself. There's a lot of small business owners that we have here, and I'm telling you that the greatest thing you could do is to put your business right here at the altar and say, Jesus, you do whatever you want to do with this. I'm telling you, when he blows on those coals, holy ghost, you can't even, you will not be able to keep track of the things that he will do. Through that. How do I know that? Because we've got precedent in scripture. Maybe you don't own a business. Maybe you work for the state. Maybe you've got, maybe you're a, a college student. Maybe you, you, you're just, you're employed and all you're trying to do is, man, I'm just trying to raise my family. I'm just trying to love Jesus. I'm not trying to do anything special. I don't want to make anybody mad. I just want to have a nice home. I just want to take a couple vacations here and there. Like, I see what you're saying, but what the gospel is offering you is so much bigger than this tiny little American dream that you have been sold called retirement. 
And for those of us who are even in retirement, you're at that age and you feel like, man, well, okay, well, things have kind of passed me by. Like the, the, the time in my life where I could have done great things. No, no, no. You are just getting started. Look, I'm convinced that the next 30 years, most of us will be living to 100. The way modern medicine is going, people are going to continue to live longer and longer and longer. Look, I'm telling you, 80 is the new 60. 50 is the new 30. Look, there is a presentation that the world is selling you that if you can just get to this moment, then everything is okay. And I'm telling you that according to the biblical worldview, there's no moment where you check out and things are done. He's using you to the day that you no longer have breath in your lungs if you let him. And there's nothing special about who he chooses to use. And that is good news for every single person in this room. Because we're a bunch of family folks who are just trying to raise kids and love our lives well. And God says, that is all I need. So lift up your heads, O ye gates, and let the King of glory come in. Because when he shows up, what he will do through you is infinitely more than you could ever accomplish on your own. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.